Good morning, everybody. You know, one of the things that I keep coming across in this weird and scary pandemic season, not necessarily from our church, but in Christendom in general, is how this all may relate to the end of days and the, and the book of Revelation. And is COVID-19 one of the signs of the times? I'm hearing theories about uh, new world orders and 5G and Bill Gates. And most of it has very little about the actual content of Revelation itself. You know, just in my lifetime alone, uh, Christians have had a propensity to fill in some of the apocalyptic symbology of Revelation or the book of Daniel with um, conspiracy theories. Um, do you remember this? Mikhail Gorbachev is the Antichrist. Barack Obama. Um, what about the European Union and, and the United Nations? And I, I get it. Like I was, I was fascinated with this stuff growing up. It's called eschatology. And that just means it's a, um, a study of last things or end times. Man, I have even a, a Christian comic book about the end times, if you can believe it. You know, a little light reading before bedtime. I watched all those 70s rapture movies growing up and I was both, you know, scared and fascinated by it all. I was in the every production of Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, you know, like like most Christian kids of a certain generation. I had a scary moment when I came home from school uh, to an empty house thinking that the rapture had taken place. You know, I knew Larry Norman's I wish we'd all been ready by heart. Um, and I'm a little embarrassed to say that I read all 47 <laughs> or whatever books of a certain fictionalized end times book series. Many of you might have a fascination about this kind of topic as well. And I, I understand it, it might just be a human fascination. We have a desire for clarity, for understanding the future. And unfortunately, Sometimes you mix that fascination with poor biblical literacy and you end up with some weird theories. So in the, in the past two and a half years since I've been here, I've never preached on this for a number of reasons. First of all, it's just hard stuff. Probably the hardest stuff in a book of hard stuff. Um, Jesus is teaching, which seems relatively straightforward in comparison. Even Jesus himself said about some of his teaching, this is hard stuff. He says, a lot of you are not going to comprehend it. Well, add to that a genre of writing called apocalyptic literature, which we don't really have anymore in 2020, written to a different um, group of people, a very specific group of people 2000 years ago, that had kind of an insider language and code. So <clears throat> it's intellectually intimidating. And it's also, frankly, a, a, a source of division in the church. And the last thing we need is yet another source of division. You know, people get real uptight about their particular camp, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial. And it, it became to me increasingly less essential. Weirdly, the older I get, the more well-read even that I get, um, 
there are less things I would theologically take a bullet for, so to speak, less hills I would die on, but more adamant about the, the things I would take a bullet for, the, the divinity of Jesus, grace, the work of the Holy Spirit, new life in Christ. But man, pre, post, amillennialism, like it got less clear cut to me. You could say I became a pan-millennialist, which is a simple theology that it'll all pan out when Jesus comes back. That's a little end times humor for you out there. Um, some, some years ago, I began studying a, a school of thought in regards to eschatology. And it turns out this school of thought was the only accepted theology until about a hundred years ago. And it was the theology that most non-Western Christians would subscribe to today even. And so I'd like to share some of the thinking around this. I'd say um, my go-to book, if you, if you want to dig deeper on this approach to end times, is called Victorious Eschatology. This is, a, this is a book actually written by a good Alliance guy, Martin Trench, an, an Alliance pastor in, in Edmonton, and uh, Harold Eberly. Why victorious eschatology? Well, you know, most modern Western Christians have what I'll call a pessimistic view of end times theology. That is, um, the world is going downhill and Christians will get taken out of here as the world gets worse and darker. And this is actually a relatively new view in light of, of Christian history. Now, I know we all like to think, hey, we're just studying the Bible. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it, right? Well, okay. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture as well. It's our interpretation that's fallible, right? Not to mention, we all come to, to Scripture with like presuppositions. We come to it with a worldview. We read the Bible uh, through a certain lens, right? I, I try to come to it as unbiased as possible, but I still come to it with a white Western male raised with everything I learned in Sunday school and, and growing up as a PK in the church. I can't shake that. And there are a couple other lenses we can read scripture through. And, and depending on which lens you subscribe to, it's gonna greatly impact your interpretation of scripture, particularly the book of Revelation and other eschatological verses. So um, the first worldview, I would say, is you come to it with a dispensational worldview. That just simply means time period. You read the Bible through um, blocks of time already programmed in your brain. Uh, immediately, you're putting what you read into a, a time frame. It's, it's actually the most common lens of uh, Bible-believing Christians in North America. It shows times where God intervened in history. Let me show you. So if it's a timeline, where are we? 2020, uh, we have, you know, Genesis 1, say Noah, Abraham, um, you know, 
basically what's called the dispensation of the Jews. And then we have the birth of Christ. And what's often called the dispensation of the church. And then somewhere around here or after is what the dispensationalists would call the tribulation, seven years, uh, split in half, three and a half years each, uh, where the Antichrist comes, the return of Christ. And this is where folks would argue about pre-trib, mid-trib, uh, all of that. And then next week, I'd even like to get into why um, most of the apocalyptic end times language that uh, we read in the New Testament is actually probably referring to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. Uh, but that's for next week. Now, this view actually hasn't been around that long. As I said, it was about 1835 when this guy named Darby introduced this idea in England, but it didn't really come to North America until the Schofield Bible was published in 1908. And that didn't really get popular until after World War II. So we're talking about a, a theology that is very new, new enough that many people are still alive today when it first got popular after the war. Huge change in thinking. And, and it actually became the dominant preaching Bible and, and seminary Bible. And most of you watching, including myself, because of how I was raised, consciously or unconsciously, think in these terms. Okay, the other view is commonly called the progressive view. And I, I wish it wasn't called that way because that gets confused with politics, pro uh, progressive politics. That's not what it's about. It's, it's looking at the Bible through the lens of understanding that God has an end goal in mind. So every time God acts in history, it's always with a progression, a goal. Um, you know what that goal is, by the way? It's the bringing of everything under the authority of Christ Jesus. Okay, uh, let me read from Ephesians. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. He lays it out. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So every time that God acts in history, and, and this, by the way, the same historical points of dispensationalism uh, apply to the progressive thinking, you know, the flood, Abraham, uh, Christ uh, coming, living, dying, resurrecting. But instead of seeing blocks of time, what if we saw it as God moving humanity towards that end goal, a victorious goal? Oops. There's that word, victorious, and therefore every time God acts, it's, it's leading people towards that point where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whew. Come on, anyone getting chills yet? And so the idea is God is working through humanity, 
um, working with humanity, working in spite of humanity, uh, where he fulfills his ultimate plan that everything and everyone bows to Jesus Christ. Now, um, it sounds simple, but these two worldviews will, will actually inform how you interpret an antichrist, a tribulation, a mark of the beast, uh, whether you believe things are getting better or worse. So a dispensationalist will interpret all these things very differently. We'll interpret the news differently. Like when a president or a prime minister gets elected uh, that they disagree with. It's like, see, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Beam me up, Lord, before his second term, right? And the progressive or victorious view is always, no, God's always winning. And if I can't see it, then maybe I'm not looking at it from God's perspective. I think actually most of Jesus' parables are referring to the progressive worldview. Most of his parables start something like this. The kingdom of God is like this, right? It's like yeast in a dough. It's like the tiniest of seeds that grows into the biggest plant. And notice when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he shows that nothing can stop the good work that God intends for us. Did you know the kingdom of God is prophesied all the way back in Daniel 2? Some of y'all know the story, right? Bad king Nebuchadnezzar has, has a dream that no one can figure out but this kid Daniel. And Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, you got quite a kingdom here, king. Very impressive. But according to your dream, three more kingdoms will come after your Babylonian kingdom. And they did. The Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. Persian, Greek, Roman. Greek, Roman. And after that, uh, a kingdom represented by a rock will crush the last kingdom. Rock. Um, and that rock is going to grow until it fills the earth. And this rock will be a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That's the kingdom of God. Uh, by the way, who, who do you think that rock is? Sunday school answer here. Jesus? Yes, you guessed right. It's, it's universally agreed that those are what the four kingdoms are. Persian, Greek, Roman, kingdom of God. Okay? So Jesus said the kingdom of God is now at hand. He said it is available to all. Jesus died. He was resurrected. He beat death and sin. He ascended to heaven and, and he sits on a throne where he rules and reigns. And since that day, 2000 years ago, the kingdom of God has been increasing like, like seeds in the soil. It's getting, it's getting bigger and bigger. The kingdom of God is here, but it's also coming. And I understand that's confusing. It's growing and it will fully manifest when Jesus comes again. Now, the dispensationalist, 
view says that the kingdom is not here. And I, I think that's a hard case to make scripturally. So that would also mean, according to the, the Daniel prophecy, that when Jesus comes back, he, he comes and he has to crush a Roman empire still. And um, I don't know how else to put this, but I think he already has. And so dispensationalists have historically had to conjecture that maybe this third kingdom is the Catholic Church or the, or the European Union or Muslims or communism. You know, it's sort of a moving target based on what decade you live in and who happens to be in the news at any given time. But the thing is, if you stick to that lens of scripture, um, you have to conclude that the kingdom of God is not available today. It's something that is coming. You know, Revelation says that the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God. And it wasn't that long ago, you know, when half the world was under communist rule. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God. You know, the gospel has infiltrated communism. There's a lot of worry these days about the deception of Islam. Did you know a million Muslims this month and next month and growing each month will kneel to Jesus? Something, something is changing. The kingdoms of our world are becoming the kingdoms of our God. God's always winning. So Jonathan, you picked a weird time to tell us that God's always winning and that the kingdom of God is advancing because um, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the world is kind of on fire these days. Did you notice that? I get it. It's kind of what I would have preached 10 years ago. You know, it's what most North American pastors would teach that the world is getting worse and worse and hang on, uh, you know, shelter in place. <laughs> but it is kind of human nature to look back and have sort of a good old days mentality. It's sort of an unrealistic belief that everything was so much rosier in the past. It's, a, it's actually a real psychological uh, uh, affliction. <laughs> it's called the decline bias or declinism. So are things really getting worse? Well, let's, let's just, for, for funsies, look back 200 years ago and we'll look at the states because it's frankly easier to get stats about the US. Okay, so 200 years ago, there's 20 million Americans, immigrants really, five million are slaves. 25% of the population, one in four is a slave. Age of sexual consent, nine years old. And if you think abortion is sort of a measure of how bad a society is or isn't, you should know abortion was legal almost everywhere at any term. And according to the records I searched out, one fifth of pregnancies were aborted. Michigan had the highest rate at 34%. Women had virtually no rights. Not only were women not allowed to vote, but their husbands were legally allowed to beat them as long as they avoided uh, maiming or killing them. In New York, for instance, sex work was out of control. There was one prostitute for every 39 men. Uh, people were moving out west, slaughtering Native Americans. 
um, during the gold rush, thousands of Chinese were brought in as forced labor. I mean, it was not Little House on the Prairie, okay? The life expectancy was 27 years old. Um, it, diseases all over. Alcoholism was much more prevalent. And are you ready for this? So was drug use. There's this book called um, It's Getting Better All the Time. Maybe it's a little Beatles reference there. And it goes through the statistics and the hard data of how much better factually, not anecdotally, things are today. And I mean, what if we went back 2000 years ago, the time when Jesus was a child, the Roman Empire ruled the world, slavery was commonplace to the point that in Italy, the hub of the empire, about 40% of the population was in slavery. Uh, at the founding of America in, in 1776, 17% 17 of Americans went to church. Today, it's 35%, twice as high. You know, last Easter 2019, not this last Easter, of course, but last Easter was the highest attendance recorded worldwide. One in three humans were in church worshiping Jesus and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ last Easter. This is true, folks. Come on. This is exciting. If Peggy's watching, she just got a Holy Spirit jolt. The kingdom of God is growing. And Jesus said it would start as a small seed and grow to be the biggest plant in the garden. There's no country bigger. There's no organization bigger. There's no army bigger than Christianity is today. And if you hear it's Islam, you're hearing wrong. In fact, there's more Muslims coming to Jesus now than at any time in human history. I, I, I know Europe is having a hard time spiritually. It feels like Canada and other Western countries are in need of revival to say the least. But you need to know globally speaking, the kingdom of God is expanding and Christianity is taking over. For every person born, there are four born again. That's never happened in history. Things are actually getting better. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God. Our children are going to see even greater things. And, and, and Jesus is coming back victorious. Amen. I'm not saying our world is perfect or that uh, global peace and utopia are just around the corner. Far from it. Until Jesus' return, the struggle between light and dark is going to continue. You know, difficult times of war and famine and disease and poverty are probably going to happen in the future. And during such times, people are often uh, capable of just inhumane acts. But I, I also want to highlight the definite reality that though it's not anywhere near perfect living here on earth, it is consistently becoming morally, ethically, spiritually better. The kingdom of God is gaining ground, not losing it. The increase of God's government and peace is truly without end. You know, the number of Christians around the world has nearly quadrupled 
in the last 100 years. You know, the Christian population in sub-Saharan Africa climbed from 9% in 1910 to 63% in 2010, or, or from about um, 8.5 million to 516 million. The number of Christians in the, the Asia-Pacific region jumped from 27 million in 1910 to 285 million in 2010. And most remarkably, in 1950, China had 1 million believers. And by 1980, 40 million believers. And by 2010, 75 million believers. The kingdom will continue to grow until his glory and knowledge fill the whole earth. You know, Isaiah prophesied it. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Listen, this theological, eschatological view I've settled on is not something I take a bullet for. I don't want it to be divisive. If you have studied this and you, and you come to a different conclusion, I totally respect that. We could even lovingly debate it for kicks, though I'd at least recommend that you would read a a partial preterist viewpoint like this book, Victorious Eschatology. And some could even argue as you're watching this, <clears throat> what difference does it make what you believe about all this? Now, this is where I could make an argument that it does make a difference. And there may even be some unintended consequences. Like, I came of age in the time of Hal Lindsey. Some of you remember this guy? He was huge in Christian and non-Christian circles alike. In 1970, Hal Lindsey wrote the dispensationalist book, The Late Great Planet Earth. He sold 35 million copies. Deeply affected a generation of pastors and leaders growing up in the 70s. Well, later, Hal releases another book titled the 1980s countdown to Armageddon, and it implied that the Battle of Armageddon would happen soon. He even went so far as to say uh, the decade of the 1980s could very well be the last decade of history as we know it. And then in the early 90s, he published Planet Earth 2000 AD, which warned Christians that they shouldn't plan to still be living on Earth by the year 2000. Lindsay assumed that the Cold War would continue until the end. Lindsay believed the hippie culture of the 70s would become the dominant culture in the United States. Um, I, I remember this other guy, Edgar Wisenant. Wisenant? He sold like four and a half million copies of this book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And he even said, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong about this. And I, I don't know if you noticed, but um, he was wrong on that prediction. So he revised the book and made it about 1989, and then 1993, and then 1994, and then 1997. I mean, not a great look for Christianity. And then in 1995, the first of the mega-selling book series um, Left Behind was released. And since there was already a bit of Y2K paranoia and, and fear, people seemed kind of primed for it. Of course, Y2K was all hype. 
but 60 million books later, and I'm responsible for at least some of those sales, I, I will not forgive them for those three terrible feature length films that came out of it though. Here's my point. Jesus told us to judge the messages of various prophets by examining the fruit of their prophetic words, right? So it, it makes me ask what fruit is coming from the left behind theology. And there's a couple I've noticed, and these are kind of just generalizations. But hear me out, because they're worth considering. You notice often fear is emphasized, which, which usually means love takes a back seat. Have you noticed this? Sometimes this theology limits our long-term thinking. Why get a degree or plan for retirement or go to college if the world is blowing up and Jesus is coming back in 1988? <laughs> um, it often creates a fear of technology because that new GPS or computer or smartphone or vaccine or whatever might be used as the mark of the beast. Uh, sometimes it, it harbors a fear of politics because the Antichrist could be right around the corner. Um, I've noticed it has the potential to breed a bit of an anti-culture view, you know, to the point of rendering Christians irrelevant. And I mean, read Paul, and it's, it's hard to make even a little biblical case for that. It can discourage people from being good stewards of the earth. Why, why would I work for the good of the world when, you know, it's just getting worse? I've seen it create some bizarre form of Christian racism. You know, many have become pro-Israel to the point of, of losing all objectivity. Like for example, if Israel were to mistreat her surrounding nations, a lot of modern Christians would give them a free pass because they're God's chosen people. And so at its worst, it, it's a form of anti-Arab racism. Um, Another thing I've noticed is I think hope gets narrowed down to a rapture escape. Our hope is so much bigger than that, than escape. Um, I, this end times view has actually spawned a fair share of cults and militias. And frankly, it's birthed a lot of silly conspiracies because it, it fits perfectly with those who believe in the Illuminati and a New World Order and QAnon and other secret societies. And listen, I'm not saying um, those of you who are pre-trib dispensationalists have any of these characteristics. I guess I'm challenging you the way I was challenged some years ago. And, and I hope I have challenged you a bit today. It's a bit of a, just an overview today, um, but maybe I've given you some food for thought or or maybe, best of all, inspired you to do some investigation for yourself. One thing we all should be able to agree on is that we are a day closer to the glorious return of Jesus. His return is imminent. It means he could show up in the sky before I finish this sentence. No. Okay, but you get the idea. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So next week, let's, let's make some more people angry and take on the, the Antichrist, um, the Mark of the Beast, 
the rapture, and Jesus' own words about what this great tribulation is. You're either not going to want to miss it, or you're going to want to intentionally try to miss it. Regardless of your theology on this, uh, one of my takeaways, one of my prayers, is that we would not become so obsessed studying the end times that we neglect the greater good of studying and training for a lifetime of following Jesus, of advancing the kingdom, uh, of, of, of loving our neighbor, of getting about the Father's business. Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for the day when you will come and wipe every tear and truly make all things right. I thank you that your kingdom has come, but it is still coming. May we be part of your good kingdom plan to spread the word of Jesus, to, to love people into your kingdom, to bring about reconciliation and hope and the greatest of these, which is love. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.